Shabbat Shalom and welcome to United Israel World Union. This is our Sabbath morning scripture study coming to you live from St. Francisville. Well, let me add this. I say coming to you live. I guess that depends. I did a poll on our Facebook group page to see when do most people listen? Uh, are they joining us live? We have a, a set number of people who join us live. I was curious. Are they watching on Facebook? Are they watching on uh, YouTube? Do they prefer to get the class later when it comes out on Apple Podcast? Uh, sort of a way for me to focus my energy on what I need to work on in terms of outreach and what's the most, I guess, what's the favored uh, way to listen to the classes. And it seems that the majority of people are picking up the class after. They're not watching live. So I guess it's still true that I'm coming to you live, whether or not you're listening to me live or not. So either way, I want to say thank you very much uh, for joining us, whether you are the one-third of our audience who picks it up later during the week or not. Uh, so welcome, welcome. Whenever you listen, thank you for joining us. And uh, I wanted to kick us off this morning by telling you that this particular class is going to focus on connectedness. You're going to see over and over that we have connections both within the narrative that we're working on today as well as the prior narratives and what follows. In such an overwhelming, uh, I guess it's so overwhelming that a person who's reading this and, and observing these connectedness points and the connections that we're going to talk about can't help but see a master hand behind these stories. So we're going to be talking about that connectedness today. We are in class number 11 of our ongoing journey through the Pentateuch. We are following the annual cycle of readings. We're in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, Bereshi. We're in the Joseph saga. Uh, and, and this Joseph story, the series of stories that are woven together into this Joseph saga, uh, run from Genesis chapter 37, verse 1, all the way to the end of the book, to the end of chapter 50. This entire section that we're now in, we're focusing on Joseph. We talk about other characters, we talk about other people, but it is generally in their relation to and their interactions with Yosef. Yosef. Now, this Joseph saga, as I'm calling it, is part of what is called by the ancient compiler, the ancient scribe. It's a work called Ele Toledot Jacob. These are the bringings forth of Jacob. But even though Jacob still plays into the story, the focus is on Joseph. Uh, Eli Toledot Jacob is the tenth and final of ten Eli Toledots in the book of Genesis. You, we've gone over this for the past several weeks. This is class 11, so you know this. Uh, but we are now in the final Eli Toledot, the final division that runs from Genesis 37 to the end of the book. Did last week feel extremely long to anyone else? Well, it should have, 
because between the close of last week's class and the beginning of this week's class, the narrative informs us that it's been two years. I don't know if your week felt like two years worth, but it was long for me. And uh, so we, here we are, two years later. Now, last week, uh, when we closed, Joseph was forgotten, and Jacob and Judah are both in mourning. Remember, uh, Jacob is uh, mourning his son, Joseph, which he said, I'll go down to my grave in grief. He refused to be comforted. Somebody had a question. I can't remember who it was. And the question was, does it say refuse to be comforted or he was just the, didn't possess the ability to be comforted? It said he refused to be comforted. The, clear, the language clearly indicates, and, and the way I want you to understand the Hebrew is, when they would approach him and say, Daddy, you know, and try to, to, try to comfort him, he would say, Stop, I don't want to be comforted. He wanted to be in that place. He was so heartbroken and devastated. So it clearly says he refused to be comforted. Now remember in, in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15 that Rachel too is said to refuse to be comforted. And we're going to touch on that a little bit again this week. Now Judah is mourning because he's lost two sons. And Jacob as we begin today's class, has only lost one. Now, remember last week I talked about there's a departure in Genesis 38. Seems out of place, but I'm here to tell you that the compiler, the final editor, the redactor, the scribe who pulled these stories together, put that story exactly where we needed it, and you're going to see that today. It's put there for a reason because some of the things that it communicates in Genesis 38, you have to have them for today's class. If you didn't cover it, you'd be at a loss. You wouldn't understand certain inner workings of the narrative flow. So that was for a very specific reason. And of course, Joseph is in prison, and he has just given the interpretation to two of his cellmates, if you will, and he told them, uh, he told the cupbearer on his way out, just don't forget me here. But it was clearly indicated at the close of last week's annual Parsha, that's exactly what happened. Joseph was forgotten. Now, this week, if it hasn't been made clear up to this point, it will certainly become clear today that behind the scenes, behind the front piece of the narrative, there's an unseen hand working, guiding, making these things happen. God is working behind the scene, even in the situations that I described of uh, Joseph's locked up state, his loneliness, his feeling of being forgotten. God is working behind the scenes. Judah and Jacob in their mourning, God is working behind the scenes. And what we're going to find today is that those three situations, as tragic as they are, are going to come together. You'll see a purpose in God's plan in each of these tragedies. So that's one of the things that I want you to watch for. Uh, so the, the point being that in point of fact, 
God is using the very circumstances which they find themselves in to achieve his plan and purpose. Again, we're looking for connectedness today. There is a beauty that's going to be realized from the words in connection with the words and on the basis of the words. One of the things that I'm learning as I work through and spend more time in the Hebrew is that there are so many nuances in the Hebrew that connect words and phrases between these stories that you will not see in English. And so that's what I'm going to try to bring out for you today as we make our way through. We're working today, we're dealing with the story begins with dreams. The Joseph saga, uh, the Joseph saga is built around three sets of dreams, in fact. Three sets of dreams that work together to, again, to show the plan and purposes of God working in history for and on behalf of his people. In the Joseph saga, we have Joseph's two dreams. We remember those dreams from Genesis chapter 37. He tells them to his brothers. They bring about the situation in which he now finds himself in. We then have the dreams of the two officials of Pharaoh's court the cupbearer and the baker. One is killed, as you recall. One is set free. He's supposed to tell people, hey, there's a Hebrew in there that told me the meaning of my dream, and he forgets him. And then third, in the way that today's class begins, is with two dreams that are dreamed by Pharaoh. Now, as I pointed out last week, this, the dream state, is the means whereby in Eli Toledot Jacob, in the Joseph saga, it's through dreams that God communicates his plan and purpose and speaks to his people. We don't have encounters with the Malak. We don't have encounters with God. You won't read in the Joseph saga, and the Lord appeared unto Joseph in the jail cell. What you're going to find is a different mechanism whereby God communicates with his people, and we'll talk a little bit about dreams today. Dreams are very important in the Joseph saga, as you know. Joseph, at least according to his brothers who hate him, uh, it's almost that every time you say his brothers, that phrase comes in in the initial part of the story, but they refer to him as the Lord of the dreams, Joseph is called by his brother, Baal HaChalomot, the Lord of the dreams. And remember in Genesis 37 when the boys are seated and Joseph comes walking up in the beautiful coat that his daddy made him, one of the boys looks to the others and said, Behold, the Lord of the dreams comes. I like that phrase. Today's class, by the way, is called the Lord of the land the Lord of the land, because we get to see a progression. We get to see that the Lord of the dreams ultimately becomes the Lord of the land. And I know that you know the story of Joseph, but I hope to share some insights in today's class that you may not have seen. Now, these three pairs of dreams I discovered this week from close study that the three pairs of dreams are connected in ways that I hadn't noticed before. They're connected in multiple ways. 
the two dreams of Joseph, we know, of course, that these two dreams basically tell the same story. They speak of Joseph's ultimate exaltation over members of his family. He relates these dreams and, and causes himself some, some problems, but ultimately it's going to lead to something quite beneficial for all involved. When he tells the dreams, all the others see is the fact that he's telling them, I'll be exalted, and they look at it in that sense, and that's all they see. They don't see at the time, nor could they know, nor I think did Joseph know, that ultimately his exaltation would be bringing life to all those who bowed down to him, if you will. Now, the officials' dreams, the officials of Pharaoh's dreams are connected through a play on words, which I brought up last week. It's a, word, it's a, it's a phrase in, in the Hebrew and in most translations, it says to lift the head, you know, one of those, for one of those, the word play turned out favorable. His head was lifted, meaning he would be restored. The other one, not so well. His head was lifted as well. Same words, totally different uh, result. Not so good. Now, Pharaoh's dreams are connected to each other. Both dreams, though different details are uh, use, different details are conveyed, uh, what we have is, is that both tell the same thing. Similar to Joseph's dreams, both of those dreams, a little bit different detail, they tell the same story. In Pharaoh's dreams, which we're going to talk about this morning first thing, you'll notice that they too. Now, beyond that, Pharaoh's dreams and the dreams of the two that were in the prison, their dreams are connected in this way. Both of their sets of dreams, one has good and ill, just like Pharaoh's dreams, good and ill. And I'm bringing these points out because they're there in the Hebrew. You have the sickly cows and the healthy cows. You have the, uh, the skinny wheat. You have the, the healthy wheat. You have So when you think about that and then you compare that to the good and ill of the two boys in prison, you, you see that connectedness there. Now, there's another one that if that weren't enough, I thought about this. I know you've considered this as well. Joseph's dream, one of his dreams, one of the versions of his exaltation dream has to do with sheaves of grain. And so does uh, one of the dreams of Pharaoh. Now, all of these dreams are connected to each other in that they're all relaying a part of God's plan and purpose, which we're following along as we work through the Pentateuch. So, so beyond the connections between one between the other, individual uh, prayers, as well as within these three sets of prayers, all of these are presented as coming from God. They're divine in their origin, and they're going to work together as we'll see. It's also worth pointing out that in the patriarchal narratives and into Eli Toledot Jacob, we do have a repetition of this seven-year cycles. Now, this is a little bit more distant in terms of connectedness, but I wanted to bring it up. Uh, you, you know, when you think about uh, the cycle of seven years in Pharaoh's dreams, he has two sets of seven years. 
Remember where we're going to talk about the plenty and the, the time of famine. Ultimately, the total would be 14 years. You can't help but think of how these 14 years turn out to be the working time of Joseph. Joseph is going to implement a 14-year plan that moves us closer to the fulfillment of God's plan and purpose. Think back to Jacob. Jacob, too, works 14 years, and he secures through that 14-year effort two women who ultimately work towards the ultimate plan and purposes uh, for God's plan. Go with me this morning, having set the stage a little bit in terms of dreams, go with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 41 and verse 1. This is the beginning of the Parsha. And it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh dreamed. Behold, he stood by the river. And behold, there came up out of the river seven kind, well-favored and fat-fleshed, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other kind came up after them out of the river, ill-favored and lean-fleshed, and stood up by the other kind upon the brink of the river. And the ill-favored and lean-fleshed kind did eat up the seven well-favored and fat kind. So Pharaoh awoke, and he slept and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up upon one stalk, rank and good. And behold, seven ears, thin and blasted with the east wind, sprung up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven rank and full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And the wise men are unable to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And what this sets stage for is something which will be repeated in the biblical text later. Remember in Daniel chapter 2, the story is very similar to what we read in Genesis 41. You have a foreign ruler who has a dream. He presents the dream to those who are supposed to be able to give him the meaning, and they're unable. And in that dream, uh, in Daniel chapter 2, we also happen to have in prison uh, a boy, or in the, the, the uh, area, happens to be a Hebrew who can interpret the meaning. The Hebrew is given the meaning, and then ultimately the Hebrew is exalted. Now, I think that this is intentional, and I think it's very interesting and I think we have other examples of that. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. I have that later in the notes. Now, I wanted to bring up this point that when we talk about those Hebrew youths who are given the meaning of dreams, they give credit to God. Let's look at a couple of these examples. Go with me to Genesis chapter 40. This is important to know because some of you might be dreaming dreams and seeing visions. All right, so go to Genesis chapter 40 and verse 8. Now recall, this is the story of, of uh, the cellmates of Joseph. And they said unto him, We have dreamed a dream, and there is none that can interpret it. 
And Joseph said unto them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, I pray you. So already Joseph is beginning to recognize that the source of understanding comes from heaven. He's not saying, I can interpret the dream. He's saying, with God's help, I can tell you the meaning. Now, look at chapter 41 of Genesis. This brings us into today's story, Genesis 41. Let's look first at verse 16. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. So remember, Joseph has this straight. Now, what we're noticing is Joseph's come a long way since the early chapters of our introduction to him in Genesis 37, where he just tells the dream. Here, he seems to possess an ability given by God to tell you the meaning of the dream. And uh, even when those dreams seem obvious in their interpretation, Joseph gives credit. Look down at verse 25 of chapter 41. And Joseph said unto Pharaoh, The dream of Pharaoh is one. What God is about to do, he hath declared unto Pharaoh. So again, Joseph is pointing out that this dream comes from God. God's about to do something. He gives this dream to Pharaoh so that he'll know. It doesn't help Pharaoh. Pharaoh has to have this Hebrew key. That'd be a good name for a book, wouldn't it? The Hebrew key and talk about the dreams in the Bible and how God even has a dream. Remember the class Dr. Tabor gave. Uh, look down at verse 28. Um, in 28, it says, That is the thing which I spoke unto Pharaoh, what God is about to do, he has showed unto Pharaoh. So I just wanted to bring that out. Now, for comparison, go with me to Daniel, to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, and I, I would suggest that if you're into this, the dream state, and, and you're going to pick up a little extra study this week based on this Torah portion, go ahead and go and read Daniel chapter 2. Um, let me back up to verse 27. Daniel answered before the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded can neither wise men, enchanters, magicians, nor soothsayers show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of your head upon your bed are these. Remember, he's, he's now going to give the interpretation. So both of these Hebrews are advising these foreign rulers on the meaning of their dreams, and they are relating to them that the gift comes from God. Now, recall, let me go, go with me to the book of Joel, just to have this in your notes. In the book of Joel, uh, chapter 2, verse 28, in the English, if you're in the Hebrew Bible, go to Joel, chapter 3, verse 1. And it will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Get ready, John. You're one of the old men, so you're going to dream dreams. Some of the younger people out there will have visions. Um, one of the things that 
I want to talk to you about today because it's related. We're talking about dreams. We're talking about the interpretation thereof and how it comes from God. Here, we just talk about a pouring out of the Spirit upon all flesh. One of the things I'm going to talk to you today about in this Pentateuch class is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. This is a full gospel Torah teaching today. So get ready because I want to share with you some things, insights that I wish that people knew who are involved in other understandings of the movement of the Spirit. Because I, I think that a lot of times people who enter into this world of the Hebrew Bible, uh, perhaps they come from another background or something, they leave that spiritual element aside. They get into an intellectual exercise. Look, if this is only an intellectual exercise at you, you're missing something quite incredible. Uh, because the Bible talks about this indwelling presence. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. All right. Now, as far as the flow of the narrative, one of the things that's important is that when the Pharaoh tells the dream and all the wise men and magicians and so forth can't give the meaning, the cupbearer says, ah, whoops, I forgot about Joseph. And so in chapter 41 and verse 9, he, uh, he tells the story uh, about how he was a prisoner. And in the prison with him just happened to be this Hebrew who could tell the meaning. So the word gets to Pharaoh. Pharaoh uh, sends for Joseph. says that in verse 14, he takes him out of the pit. Now, I just want to make an observation here. I'm talking about connectedness. When you think of Joseph... There are times in Joseph's life where he finds himself in a pit. The same Hebrew word is used. So when he's in dire straits, if you will, when Joseph is in low times of his life, our editor, our writer, our scribe uses the same word almost exclusively. He finds himself in a pit in 4114. That's not the first time Joseph's been in a pit. The, the same word is used in chapter 37, verse 20, verse 22, verse 24, verse 28, all of which describe Joseph's bad place at the time as being in a pit. And, and oh, by the way, in chapter 40 and verse 15, he's in a pit there as well. Now, a lot of times you'll find that they translate the word differently uh, in English translation. Is he in a cell? Is he in this? It, in Hebrew, it's always the same. So do a study on, on that and, and you'll, be, you'll begin to see that what the writer is doing is saying, Joseph's in a pit. Joseph's in a pit. Joseph's back in the pit. Remember, Joseph's story is one of riches to rags, to riches to rags, to riches. It, you follow the pattern. You're going to see patterns all through this. Now, also, look at verse 14 with me, Genesis 41. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon pit, and he shaved himself and changed his raiment, is the ASV, and came in unto Pharaoh. He changed his garment. 
Now, what is significant about this is that, as I pointed out last week, the story of Joseph, the scribe, also, when he's in the low places of life, he's in a pit, and it's always related. Every story about Joseph, I want you to imagine, like I said in the previous class, it's like a play being acted out before us. Joseph changes a garment. By the way, I got all your notes. Everybody said, oh, you didn't see the technicolor coat or whatever. So I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll watch it. I always get in trouble. I never take a break and just watch things. So evidently somebody's beat me to it. We'll see how good it is. But he changes his garment and he goes out. Now, Pharaoh tells Joseph the dream verses 15 through 24. I'm not going to read the entire thing. And he is told by Joseph that the dreams relate the same story in their meaning. You have ears and cows, and both of these are telling the same story. I just had a thought, ears and steers, but I think steers, I'm not a cowboy, so steers are uh, taken care of where they can't uh, breed and they're just used for meat. So I don't think that's what it is, but it would be a catchy title. I just use it for the rhyming effect. But ears of grain and cattle. Go with me to verse 32, chapter 41 and verse 32. Sometimes I just say something, it hits my mind, I need to bridle myself. And for that, the dream was doubled unto Pharaoh. It's because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. So one of the things that we learn here, I think is an important point, is that when a dream comes consecutively, it's doubled, it's repeated according to Joseph, and Joseph ought to know because he is the Baal HaChalamot. He's the Lord of the dreams. And what he tells us is that if a dream is doubled, it means a couple of things. It's, uh, it's going to be quick in its fulfillment, and it's from God. Everybody see that? Now, uh, what Joseph begins to do then is he lays out a plan. Now, the question in the reader's mind is, does Joseph have himself in line for this position? Does he know that he's going to be selected? I think he does. I mean, he lays out a resume that only he can fit. He describes this person, and I want to look at that, so go with me. And let's see, let's read this part closely. When once he lays out the plan, chapter 41, verse 37, the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, can we find such a one as this? a man in whom the Spirit of God is. Now, in Hebrew, Ruach Elohim. Ruach Elohim. And you're going to see shortly that Joseph actually sort of laid this resume out. 
You know, you have to appoint someone who, who has these abilities that can help you get through this thing. And then Pharaoh recognizes, look, down, look at verse 33. This is Joseph laying out who fits, who's going to be the person for this job. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh look out a man, the English says, discreet and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Discreet and wise. In Hebrew, understanding and wise. So then when you go down in verse 38, and Pharaoh says, can we find such a one of this, uh, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? Ruach Elohim. Ruach Elohim occurs 16 times in the Hebrew Bible. And one of the clues that we have here is that such a one will be discreet and wise, understanding and possessing wisdom. Now, you're going to be surprised to learn exactly what that indicates to it because as it turns out, these qualities are traits, understanding and wisdom are connected to the indwelling of God's Spirit. They are two of three components that are described in biblical text, Bina, understanding, and Chokhmah, wisdom. Understanding and wisdom are two of three elements that make up the evidence which indicates the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit, at least according to the Pentateuch. I'll give you a couple of examples. Go with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 31 and verse 3. Uh, we could back up to verse 1. Jehovah spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Filled him with the Spirit of God. By the way, you know what the Hebrew says there? And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. In wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge, and in all matter of workmanship, etc., etc. So one of the things that we need to notice is, remember when uh, Joseph said, yeah, we need this person to have understanding and wisdom, discreet and wise, and then Pharaoh recognizes that we need to look for someone in whom is the Spirit of God. Here we see that one that is filled with the Spirit of God will possess wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, which in Hebrew is da'at. So wisdom is, uh, understanding is, is bina, um, and then uh, wisdom is chokhmah, and knowledge is da'at. Now, how many of you have ever heard of Chabad? We're going to work with Chabad this weekend. You know what that word represents? Chabad is formed by three Hebrew letters. And um, it's, it's associated with chokhmah, wisdom, bina, and da'at, chabad. There you go. Look at chapter 35 of Exodus. Exodus 35 and verse 31. And he filled him... If you back up, uh, this is the same basic 
it's an account of Bezalel again, verse 31, and he filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, and with knowledge. All right. I caught, wait, let's look. Uh, there's also another one. 1 Kings chapter 7, I believe. This one just hit me. I think it says the same thing. 1 Kings 7 and verse 14. Predictably, by the way, we see this again. Look at 1 Kings 7, 14, talking about Hiram of Tyre. It says he was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in brass, and he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill. Well, in Hebrew, it should be knowledge because you have chokmah, uh, bina, and da'at. So predictably, we have another artisan who's filled with the Spirit of God, and he is granted these, what I call, the roots of the Spirit. Now, you've probably heard of the fruits of the Spirit. This is, these are the roots of the Spirit. Because these represent the evidences of an indwelling of God's Spirit. And by the way, go with me to Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs 3, and verse 19. Jehovah, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. And by his knowledge, the depths were broken up and the skies dropped down the dew. This tells us that with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, those three, God created the earth. The same is said in Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 12, uh, and then um, Proverbs 24, verses 3 through 4 is something you can look up later. It deals with how you ought to possess these things to build a house, if you will. Now, Joseph is exalted. He is the guy that fits the bill. Go back to Genesis 41, and I won't read through all this, but from chapter 41, verse 37, let's pick up there. The thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God hath showed thee all of this, there's none so discreet and wise, understanding and wise as thou. Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all of my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I've set thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried before him, Abrech. Bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Paro, and without thee shall no man lift his hand or his foot in all the land of Egypt. Now, in verse 42, what do we see? The fifth garment change of Joseph. 
Again, it shows up over and over. The scribe wants us to recognize these garment changes. This one, again, indicates his exaltation. Now, the next thing I wanted to talk about um, is <clears throat> Pharaoh, verse 45, called Joseph's name um, Zathnat Paneach, and he gave him to wife Asnat, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. And Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Now, many of you know this. A lot of uh, Jewish commentators have made it a point to try to say that Asnat, Asnat is not Egyptian because it violates a much later uh, requirement that you have to marry a Jewish person. So they do some gymnastics to put it together, a story that says that she's not really Egyptian. Let me tell you something about this girl. She's Egyptian. All right? She's clearly Egyptian. Not only is she Egyptian, she's the daughter of a priest uh, of on. Now, what does her name mean? This is a clue. This is an interesting thing. The word, the name Asnat, she's a minor figure in the book of Genesis. We only see her name mentioned three times, Genesis 41, verse 45, and verse 50, and then in chapter 46 and verse 20. We never hear anything else about her. Now, I'm interested in the biblical and historical Asenat means belonging to Niet. Niet. Niet is a goddess. She's an Egyptian goddess. So he's married. Joseph, good Hebrew boy from Canaan, is married to Asenat, whose name means belonging to Niet. This ancient Egyptian goddess, I don't have time to go into great detail, but I read quite a bit on this this week. It is fascinating. She's one of the most ancient Egyptian goddesses. She was considered to be the creator, the goddess of the cosmos. She's over fate and wisdom and water and hunting and war. And there is a major, throughout history, there was a, a major association of religious folk in Egypt uh, that gave adoration and worship to Niet. Now, uh, one of the main points, the chief areas of worship is in this area of the Nile Delta. It's called Lower Egypt. Someone corrected our map the other day. I thought I appreciated that. You know, a lot of times you look at the map and it said Upper Egypt in that Nile Delta. Why do they say that? Because it's at the top. But that's not Upper Egypt. That's called Lower Egypt. But in the Nile Delta was a major area of worship for Niet. Now, the priest of On, where is On? On is also in the Nile Delta. So here we have a priest of On, perhaps at a place of worship for Niet. Why else would you name your daughter belonging to Niet if you said, is that your God, Niet? Nah, I just think it's a pretty name. No, it's the name of the God that the family serves. Now, this particular girl 
is given to Joseph, and it is through her um, that two boys are born. We'll get into that. Oh, also, the niet is associated with archery. Now, I just because we're talking about the Joseph story and this archery is a common theme I found in the academic papers I read this week. Look with me at Genesis 49, and I just want to hold this in my notes until we get to this when I can further explore it. But chapter 49, uh, verse 23, please. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and persecuted him, but his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Now, why is it that Jacob is talking about Joseph in terms of archery and his steadfast faith in the mighty one of Jacob? I don't know. We'll get to that. But I wanted to bring it up at this point. So this Egyptian woman named for an Egyptian goddess whose father was an Egyptian priest in an Egyptian religion in a place where Niet is worshipped with her, he has two sons. His two sons are named Manasseh and Ephraim. Go with me to Genesis 41. Genesis 41 and verse 50. 41, 50. And unto Joseph were born two sons before the year of famine came. All right. Before the year of famine came, when Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, or Potipharah, priest of On, bare unto him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my toil in all my father's house. So the first child's born. He names the child Manasseh, which is related in Hebrew to the word that means to forget. It's a play. Now, the fact that you name your child, I have forgotten um, all my toil and my father's house, means what? You haven't forgotten all your toil and your father's house. It's a hopeful designation. It's a name that says, I hope that this child helps me to forget. I'm established here. I have a family. I have a beautiful pagan Egyptian woman. A lot of eye makeup. And I don't have to think about going back to Canaan. Now look, verse 52, in the name of the second Called he Ephraim, for God hath made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So he's got these two boys. He's between the age of 30 and 37, closer to 37, when his sons are born. Uh, how do we know this? Well, we know that the story begins uh, today. It's been two years. He's, you know, we know that he's about 30 years old when these events take place, and then you know it's been a few, so he has them around 37. Now, in chapter 42, it's starting to get into the connectedness I want to share with you really uh, in today's class. Jacob says, Jacob saw that there's grain in Egypt. Commentators point this out all the time. How does he see it? Well, verses 1 and 2 says he saw it and he heard it. So he hears that there's food in Egypt and he sends the boys. Now, he doesn't send Benjamin, but he sends the other ten. 
He sends them to go get grain. And as in the dream, though not in its fullness, 10 brothers in chapter uh, uh, 42 bow down before Joseph. They don't know who he is. Remember, he's had this dream in chapter 37, verse 7, verse 9, and verse 10 that the family's going to bow down to him. Well, this isn't everybody. It's only 10 of them, but uh, the 10 do bow down. That first dream in chapter 37, where he talks about um, the sheaves and the wheat, there's no number given as to how many bow down. I do want to make a correction to last week's class. Timothy Thompson brought this up in a discussion with me because I said, you know, uh, how do we know that Benjamin is uh, born at a certain time? And, and I got into that question because I was looking at some, some depth of the text. And he said, no, it's got to be that Benjamin is born because uh, you have 11, 11 bowing down, right? Remember that? The 11, the sun and the moon and the stars. And, and so uh, anyway, I'll, I'll write, I'm writing something up on that to put out. Good observation, though. Now, in verse 7, this is one of the things I want to talk about, that the scribe is doing, making a lot of effort to show a connection within the text and the stories. Joseph recognized them, and it says, but treated them as strangers. Now, the same Hebrew word, the same Hebrew root word is used in both of those places. Joseph recognizing and treating them as strangers, same root word. Now, that's interesting, all right? But it's the same root. So how do you translate? Obviously, if I look at it in English and I say, Joseph recognized them, but treated them as strangers, would you have any idea that the underlying Hebrew is the same? I certainly wouldn't. Let me read this in this translation and see what it says. Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them. But in Hebrew, again, uh, the Hebrew reflects the, same, the use of the same word. Uh, and then, then later it says, The kaf and the resh are part of a word that is used for stranger, someone who is not recognized. But in various forms, it has to do, the root idea has to do with recognized or recognition, identification, all right? So sometimes it can mean that person is identified with that group or that person is not identified with that group. You see how it can play both ways. So, same Hebrew word. Now, it's part of a play on this idea that runs throughout the stories of Genesis, brilliantly inserted in the stories, but missed because translations don't find a way to show you the beauty of this. Give you a couple of examples. Uh, Look at Genesis 37, 32. Genesis 37, 32, listen to this. It says, And they sent the coat of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, This we have found. 
Know now whether it is your son's coat or not. Well, in some translations, it says identify this. Or do you recognize this? Is it because the Hebrew is the same idea? Recognize. Now, in Genesis 38, verse 25, remember Judah leaves his things with Tamar? And then when she gets pregnant and he brings her before, you know, out in the public to condemn her, she said, oh, excuse me, can you tell me who these belong to? Can you identify these? Same Hebrew word. But that's not all. It goes throughout the stories of Genesis, largely unnoticed, or should I say unrecognized. Isaac, in, a, in, in Genesis 27, verse 33, same word, didn't recognize Jacob. Same word. Uh, Jacob to Laban, when Laban accuses him of stealing his idols and he's looking, you know what Jacob says? Hey, search my stuff, Laban, and point out or identify, recognize anything that belongs to you. That's Genesis uh, 31, 32. Same Hebrew word. When the boys say to Jacob, we have this coat, please identify it, Genesis 37, 32, and then he identifies it in verse 33, same Hebrew word. When Tamar says, as I covered, when Judah recognized that those were his things, same Hebrew word. So this is an idea. Now, we're at the story now where it says all of a sudden, Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. He treats them as someone not recognized. Like he's acting like, I don't even know who you are. In fact, you're spies. He accuses them of spying. Now, look at their answer. Go with me to Genesis 42. Genesis 42, and let's pick up at verse 10. This is their response to you or spies. They said unto him, Nay, my Lord, but to buy food are thy servants come. We are all one man's son. We are true men. Your servants are no spies. Well, there's, that's to be seen. Are they true or not? But in verse 11 and verse 13, they, co they uh, convey that they are sons of one man. The youngest is with the father, and then they say, one is not, and they knew, one is not. Well, who is that? Talking about Joseph. Joseph's there, and they said, look, the ten of us, we're all sons of one father. The youngest is with daddy, and one is no more. This Anenu shows up over and over in the text, Genesis 37, 30. Remember, uh, let's look at that real quick and then I'll move forward. But Genesis 37, 30, this is the response. This is the first occurrence in the story of Joseph. This is talking about Reuben. And he returned unto his brethren and said, The child is not, and I, where shall I go? He's already in bad position with his father because of uh, the handmaid. And now he's the oldest and he's lost the youngest. So he says, the child and they knew. And then in chapter 42 in our story today, twice in verse 13 and verse 32, 
the boys relate in reference to Joseph, he is the one who is not in Nenu. Now, this also comes across prophetically. I want you to go with me to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31 and verse 15. Thus says Jehovah, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are not. Now, the Hebrew doesn't say they are not. It says he is not. And Nenu. And Nenu. Because he is not. That's the third person masculine singular there. Now, who is the he? Rachel is weeping for her sons. And you have to wonder how is it that this becomes the singular here, because in both places where it says weeping over her sons and refused to be comforted, those are in the plural construct. And then at the end, it says, because he is not. Who is the he? That's for a later class. Okay, now it's lesson time. Joseph needs to put the boys through a test. Remember these ideas as we get into this over this class, the closure of this class, and the beginning of the next few. The punishment has to fit the crime. They have to reap what they sow. It's sort of the, the, the hair of the dog that bit you idea. What we're going to find is that the thing is played out with brilliance, and we have to see the connection between the actions of Joseph to the brothers and, and their actions in the affair that led to this particular place. So at first he proposes in verse 16 that he's going to send one of them to go get the youngest, right? That's the way it's presented. And then in verse 17, all of the boys are put into custody. Now Joseph has tasted imprisonment, and now it's as if those that were responsible for his time, uh, they're now in prison, sort of a reap what you sow. Now, in verse 18, <clears throat> it says, uh, do this and live. Now, I had in my notes some, some passages I wanted to go to, but I'm going to move past that. Um, I'll pick that up in another class. But if you look at that phrase, do this and live, it's very interesting how that plays into later legislation in the Pentateuch. But in verse 19, Joseph reverses his plan. Originally, he's going to send uh, one to go get the youngest. But here, instead of sending one, he's going to send all but one. And he's going to go get Benjamin. And he's going to keep one. Now, who does he pick to keep? Because he gets to pick. He picks. And the question is, why? He picks Simeon. Now, Joseph knows the boys, right? It's been a while, but he knows them. He's still got a bone to pick with, with them for what happened to him. So why does he pick Simeon? Here's what I think. At least part of this is Simeon is the second son of Leah, and he wants 
to keep the second son of Leah to exchange for the second son of Rachel. Now, have you ever noticed that? They're both second sons. He keeps one. He's the guy you should keep. Now, there could be other reasons that we don't read about. In other words, it could be that Simeon was the last face he saw before he's thrown into the pit. I don't know. But what we see in the story next is that the boys are catching on. Now, they still don't know that Joseph is Joseph. He's just the Lord of the land. You know, he speaks Egyptian. He's working through an interpreter. The old joke, he looks like an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. In their mind, he's an Egyptian. I assume he's got makeup. You know, he's not looking like an Israelite patriarch with zitzit and a kippah. That's not in what's going on here. He's probably clean shaven, at least on the sides with a goatee, as we often see. Uh, but he's certainly, he doesn't look like them. But they're catching on. Look at chapter 42, Genesis 42 and verse 21. Genesis 42, verse 21. And it says, They said to one another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul. Now, when I read this, it gets me. Because we didn't get that in the story of when they threw him into the pit. But when I read the words here, they saw the distress. They saw a terrified boy. And we were verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he besought us. You can imagine young Joseph is, please, guys, please, don't do this. Don't do this. They did it anyway. And we would not hear, therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered them saying, didn't I tell you, don't sin against the child and you wouldn't hear? Therefore also, behold, his blood is required. And by the way, in the Hebrew, that's, I don't like that translation. Behold, also it says, vagam, and also his blood, behold, is seeking. I get the impression from the Hebrews, this is my understanding, <clears throat> that Reuben says, his blood is coming after us. That's what it means. It doesn't mean his blood is required. What is that? It, his blood, the word is derosh, derosh. It's, his blood is seeking. It's like it's chasing us down now, Joseph, verse 23, overhears this. He hears them saying, it's because of what we did to our brother. And he has to turn away and weep. <clears throat> but you know what? He's able to get the composure back. He's not done yet. Now we got the story of the sacks and the money. They get ready to leave. Simeon is in the slammer. They have him locked up. He's bound. The other boys go back, and, and along the way, they realize that their money's been put back in the sack. And when they get home, they begin to tell Jacob about the events. Jacob says the following. Look at chapter 42, 
Genesis 42 and verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and you'll take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. So they've just presented the plan. Look, the man of the land said that we have to take Benjamin there, and Jacob is, he cannot believe this is me, and when I read it, I think this. He can't believe how stupid these boys are. How could you possibly think that I'm going to let you take another one of my boys? Joseph is dead. Simeon is no more, and I'm going to give you another? I think he's literally at wit's end with these guys. I mean, this is the way I read it. Reuben offers. Look, you got to trust me on this one, Dad. I, if, if this doesn't work, you know, basically, now, I don't think Jacob wants to hear a dadgum thing that Reuben has to offer, and he ignores him. He refuses to go with that plan. And then Jacob refuses to address the issue. They said, we can't get any more wheat and you can't have your son back until we bring Benjamin because he thinks we're lying. We got to bring Benjamin in order to get Simeon back. And Jacob doesn't address it. And I know why. I'll tell you in a minute. But you know what? They get low on wheat. But you see, in his mind, he can't face losing a third son. He can't take that possibility, that, that, that chance. As far as he knows, Joseph is dead. Simeon, for all he knows, is dead. And, and he can't give up a third son. But the only person in the group that can relate is someone who also had lost two sons. See, we wouldn't know this. But Genesis 38 was out of place, we thought. We read the story in 38 as Joseph is on his way to Egypt. We read the story that Judah gets this girl and he, he has, uh, you know, he gets, uh, gives one son to this woman and heir and he dies and then Onan dies and, and then he has Shelah and he, he, he knows that he should give him to this girl, but he doesn't, he doesn't want to give up a third son. So tell me that Judah doesn't know how to relate to his dad. So he goes up to his dad, and he says, Dad, you have to understand. The man said that we have to bring Benjamin. We have to. Now, I, th I picture, in my mind, I picture this conversation takes away a place away, takes place away from the other boys. We don't know that he said this, but perhaps he said, I know what you feel. I too lost two sons. Now, I told you, I think that I found evidence in the chronicles and the genealogy that ultimately he did finally give that third son 
because remember, Shelah, his Shelah's firstborn is named Er, which indicates that he named the child after the firstborn. So I think Judah probably said, I know, I know what it feels like. The emotion in this story has us just, you ought to be thinking, oh, I can't, can you imagine only Judah can talk to him? Now look at chapter 43, verse 6 through 8. Israel said, Wherefore dealt ye so ill with me as to tell the man whether you had a brother? And they said, the, the man asked straightly concerning ourselves and concerning our kindred, saying, Is your father yet alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to the tenor of these words. Could we in any wise know that he would say, Bring your brother down? I want you to feel the frustration there. The boy said, you, We didn't volunteer this information. The guy asked us, do you have your dad? Is your dad okay? Do you have another brother? Yes, we have another brother. And then he, they said, we would, how would we know? He'd say, well, bring him down. You say, well, they have a good point. Jacob, Jacob is basically saying, why did you divulge that much information? Don't ask, don't tell. If they didn't ask you for it, why would you tell them that? Or is he saying, why did you tell the truth? I mean, because really they told the truth. Or did they? Jacob assumes that the boys have screwed up again, that they volunteered that they had another brother. Their side of the story is, we know the guy asked us pointedly. We're not going to lie to him. So who's telling the truth? Is Jacob right? Does he understand that his boys messed this up by telling? Or did the man ask? Well, we can easily go back and look. Have you ever done this? Let's see what, who's telling the truth here. Is Jacob right? Does he know his boys have screwed up? Look at chapter 42, verse 9. <clears throat> and Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them, and he said unto them, Your spies to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. And they said unto him, Nay, my Lord, but to buy food are your servants come. We are all one man's son. We are true men. Your servants are not spies. And he said unto them, Nay, but to see the nakedness of the lands ye are come. And they said, Why? Uh, we thy servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. Now Joseph knew that they had a younger brother already. Truth be known. But they told their dad. Now imagine, you would tell your dad the same thing probably. He says, why in the world would you tell him about Benjamin? And, they, and they, So they come up with a lie. Just as Jacob suspected, his boys gave the info freely. But you know what? He's never going to find out. This is one of those in the plot, in the narrative. We know it. Jacob never found out. 
So Israel comes up with a plan. And he says in verses 11 through 14, you're going to take your brother because uh, Judah convinces him. Take your brother and bring some things with you. Now, I want you to look at this. Uh, chapter 40, let's see, Genesis 43, uh, verse 11, or let's see. Yeah, 43, 11. And their father Israel said unto them, If it be so, now do this. Take of the choice fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down the man a present. A little balm, a little honey, spicery and myrrh, nuts and almonds, and take double money in your hand and the money that was returned in the mouth of your sack. Carry again in your hand, peradventure it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go again unto the man. Now, why is it that he brings balm and laudanum? which are two of the things that are being brought. Why do we need to know this? Because of the connectedness with the story. In Genesis chapter 37 and verse 25, we have the reason. Genesis 37, 25. And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh going to carry it down to Egypt. The Hebrew reflects that the same things that the Ishmaelites were carrying in their caravan, Joseph now sends with Benjamin so both of the sons of Rachel go into Egypt with the same sorts of things. We'll see a, more of a reason for that in a little while. Now, whenever, whenever I read these stories and we see these connections, everything about them draws out this interconnectedness. The second son of, his, of Rachel finds himself on the way to Egypt. Uh, the one over Jacob's house, or Joseph's house, I'm sorry, begins to prepare for the meeting. Now, the boys are very concerned. What are they concerned about? They're concerned that they had the money in their bags. They think that that's going to get them in trouble beyond any trouble that they've gotten in already. Joseph, when they explained to him, look, when we were leaving last time, we realized we had the money. We have that money and we brought you more. Joseph said, I got your money. You keep that. Your God must have given you that as a gift. So he tells them to keep the money. All of the boys in verse 26 bow down in fulfillment of Joseph's dream. So look at Genesis uh, 43, verse 26. <clears throat> and when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed themselves to him to the earth. And he asked them of their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom ye spoke? Is he yet alive? 
And they said, your father, uh, your servant, our father is well. He is yet alive. And they bowed the head and made obeisance. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw Benjamin, his brother, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious unto you, my son. And Joseph made haste, for his heart yearned over his brother. And he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber, and he wept there. He washed his face and came out, and he refrained himself and said, set on the bread. Now imagine, I just read that, but think about the, the power, the emotion. Joseph sees his brother. He has to get up and get out of the room so he doesn't cry in front of him. Part of that is he... He's still not finished testing these boys yet. He washes his face. He comes back. He sets it up. Now, this is a different meal than the brothers had concerning Joseph last time. Last time, they were plotting against him. This time, totally different story. Now, Benjamin is shown favoritism in verse 34. He's given five times. It's obvious. Like, imagine the boy's looking down the table, and he's probably got, you know, people feeding him grapes, and he's got more food, and you don't think that that's obvious? The other boy's looking down, but let me ask you this. The question becomes, how will the brothers Israel treat the second son of Rachel? Because he's not done yet. This time, he slides his cup in the bag of Benjamin. Now, all the boys are together. They're going back, and Benjamin's bag has his divination cup. And I think he probably really had one. That's what it says. And what they do is they catch, he says to his, his troops, basically, overtake them and accuse them of theft. And that's what happens. Now, I want you to remember the connectedness here. Think of Laban's story. There's idolatry involved. Uh, Laban chases down and says, hey, he over it says he overtook them and accused them of theft. Same story. The verbs agree everything. Verse 9, you know what they say? Look at verse 9, chapter 44. See if you see a connection here. Chapter 44, verse 9. With whomsoever of your servants it be found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves or bondmen. Remember what Jacob says to Laban? Whoever you find the idol with, they'll die. Same story. I mean, it's the same details. It's being played out again in the life of Joseph. This is why the rabbis say that the things that happen to the fathers happen to the descendants. They don't come up with these sayings unless there's a reason. It shows it over and over. That's Genesis 31, 32, where Jacob says that to Laban. And Joseph they said, kill the person who has it, and we'll all be slaves. Joseph counters that. He said, no, nah, the person who has it will be my slave, and the rest of you can go away. You're free to go. 
The drama unfolds. Imagine this. They tear their garments. I mean, they know they can't go back and tell their father that Benjamin's not with them. That's not an option. They're, They're distressed. They rip their garments. Remember the story, Joseph's garments being ripped and coated in blood to appear that a beast has eaten him. Judah has an offer in verse 14 through 17. He says, all of us will be slaves. I didn't get that. Siri trying to help me out here. (laughs) All of the boys will be servants. Remember his plan for Joseph when they were talking about killing him in Genesis 37, verse 26 and 27, Judah's plan at that time was, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. Now, Judah offers that they all be put into slavery. You see how the stories are connected? Verse 17, Joseph says, no, just him. Whoever's got it. And y'all go back to your father's house in peace. So we're all sitting on the edge of our seat. How is the story going to move forward? And you're saying, well, we all know how the story goes. You still watch the Titanic. You knew that the ship sank, so you have to play along with me. Is Benjamin going to be left in Egypt? Tension is at the highest point. But one thing is on the mind of Judah and the mind of Joseph. One person. They're thinking about the same person. It's the same person each of them are totally thinking of. And I can prove who that is, but I'm not going to do it today. Join me next week and I'll tell you what was on the mind of Jacob, I mean on Joseph's mind and on Judah's mind. Shabbat Shalom, Shavuot Tov, have a beautiful week. See you next Saturday.